0: Good morning, happy Sabbath. happy Sabbath. I don't know what kind of a, a week you have had. It's hard to know, um, the world keeps uh, spiraling downwards in one way or another, and uh, sometimes it's hard to know whether the things that are happening are just in your own sphere or bubble, or if it's um, been rough for, for everyone. But I know that we have, have good weeks and bad weeks, and I'm thankful for the Sabbath And I'm thankful that we can be here and talk about Jesus today. I uh, could go through the litany of of, uh, phone calls and challenges of things that I've heard about from people around me, and there's a time and a place where that's okay to do. But I think instead of doing that, I want to just look at Jesus for a bit this morning. Let's bow our heads for another word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance that we have to be together as a church family. I thank you for all those that are here. I thank you for those that are watching online. I thank you, Lord, that we are a tiny part of a large worldwide church that is meeting together this Sabbath morning to worship you. Lord, as we turn our eyes on you, I ask that you would guide us and that you would uh, speak directly to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All humanity is now involved in a great controversy. This controversy is between Christ and Satan regarding the character of God, his law and his sovereignty over the universe. This conflict originated in heaven when a created being, Endowed with the freedom of choice, in self-exaltation, became Satan, God's adversary, and led into rebellion a portion of the angels. He introduced this spirit of rebellion into this world when he led Adam and Eve into sin. This human sin resulted in the distortion of the image of God in humanity, the disordering of the created world and its eventual devastation at the time of a global flood, as presented in the historical account in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Observed by the whole of creation, this world became the arena of a universal conflict out of which the God of love will ultimately be vindicated. To assist his people in this controversy, Christ sends the Holy Spirit and his loyal angels to guide, protect, And sustain them in the way of salvation. God created the universe. He said to all of the universe, I am love. And Satan looked at him and said, Eh, I don't think so. I think I can do it better. And sin entered the universe. God created this world. And he came to Adam and Eve and said, I love you, trust me, obey me, I know what's best for you. And Adam and Eve said, "Eh, I think we know better. And then sin entered our world. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you this morning as a sinner. I stand before you as a sinner in need of a savior and some of you might say, well, well, pastor, what kind of a sinner are you? Are you a bad sinner or are you a good sinner? Pastor, do you, do you uh, steal and, and, and kill and, and, and those kinds of things? Or are you just a good sinner? You know, little white lies and some, some gossip now and again. I stand before you a sinner and I believe in the eyes of God that sin is sin. The Bible tells us that, that sin is a separation or a breaking of our relationship with God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I've tried to parse this verse. And when you look in the original Greek at the word all, it literally means all. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way around it. When God says that everyone has sinned, that's what he means. Romans 6.23, probably the most depressing phrase in all of Scripture, says, for the wages of sin is death. We live in a sinful world that pushes back against that and says, don't worry about sin. Sin actually probably doesn't really exist. You really should focus on doing what you think is best. Do what you feel is good for you. Do what you feel is right. You'll be okay. Okay but I'm afraid that God does not judge us by the standards of this world, but he judges us by his own standards. And as I look at myself, I'm fairly convinced that I am not able to live up to the standards of God in and of myself. I'm thankful that this verse that I have taken out of context has an ending. If you look at the whole verse, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but I've had enough time watching the way the world runs with Satan. I'm good there. I'd kind of like to see the way all of eternity will go with God in charge. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can pay for our own sins if we want to. Or we can let Jesus pay for them. And we can enjoy all of eternity in heaven with him. This morning, I wanna talk about Jesus. As a pastor, I get to study all kinds of things in scripture and it's wonderful to be able to do that. But the last couple of weeks, I've zoomed back and all of the Bible is about Jesus. But I've been focusing just on Jesus. It's fun to study the 2300 days or or whether Michael the archangel was was Jesus or somebody else and and to go into the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, but to just look at the life of Jesus. I want to walk with you a little bit down that road this morning. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, we get a picture, we get a hint that God started to show the plan of salvation as early as when he started with Adam and Eve in the garden. They're kicked out of the garden because they sinned and that in itself was mercy because what they deserved was to die and to die instantly. In Genesis 3.21, what we see happening is that Adam and Eve are being clothed with some animal skins. Wait a second, where did those skins come from? And you can piece things together and we see Jesus telling Adam and Eve and all of us through history that the wages of sin is death. When you sin, something has to die. And I believe that God was intimately involved in the taking of the first life of the first animals that were sacrificed for sin. And that as Adam and Eve took the skins of that and clothes were made for them, they were wearing the garments that were created because of their sin. I don't know how long they wore those, but if they itched, it was a reminder of where they came from. If they moved with them well, it was a reminder of where they came from. The sacrificial system existed all through Genesis, but it was codified after the Exodus when, Adam and, or when the, the Israelites left out of Egypt. We could spend a whole month of sermons on this, and I'm going to spend maybe five minutes. <laughs> this picture here shows some space around the outside of this sanctuary where the Israelites have their tents. And I don't know if anyone knows for sure, but a lot of people have suggested it's about the length of a football field, about 100 yards. And when you sinned, I don't know if you kicked the dog or threw a rock through the window or yelled at your neighbor, and it was time for you to go and make that right, because sin was a breaking of the relationship with God, and you needed to mend that relationship. There never was and never will be a lamb that can cover your sins But those lambs pointed towards the true lamb of God, Jesus. And every time they would have a sacrifice, after their sin, they would would have to find a lamb that they could offer as a sacrifice. Now, if they were a sheep herder, they would go and choose the best lamb that they had. If they weren't, they would have to take their money and buy the nicest lamb that they could, and Depending on the sacrifice and the different times and the feasts, there's little differences in how this went. But bottom line, when they're going for a sin offering, they have procured a lamb that cost them something and they are carrying that lamb to the sanctuary. I don't know that there were people standing around like they show in this picture, but if you see so and so walking from the tents to the sanctuary with the lamb, it's pretty easy to go, huh, wonder what Henry did. Huh, wonder what Adam did. Was he a good sinner or a bad sinner? You go through the gate here, you part those curtains, and a priest would meet you there. You can see the first piece of furniture, it's kind of of square, it's the altar. Um, A little bit further on it, right in the middle of the picture is, they call it the laver or the wash basin, And you wouldn't get that far. You would just walk through the gate and a priest would meet you there. You had a lamb. The priest had a bowl and a knife. Now, I've never done what I'm about to describe, but I have on one occasion, one time, sheared a sheep. I did one as a 4-H project growing up on a farm. And that was miserable. They are squirmy little creatures. And he was my pet lamb too. (laughs) You bring the lamb in And you're facing the priest, you can see the the sanctuary, the tabernacle ahead of you, the lamb is pointed the same way and you straddle that animal and you take your knees and you push it into the animal's ribs. And you can hold it still. For my purposes, for shearing. The priest comes up and he stands in front of you and you take one hand, I'm right-handed, so I would take my left hand and I would put it under the, the chin of that lamb. I would take my right hand and put it on top of his head and I would confess my sins. The priest would then hand me the knife, my right hand, and he would take the bowl and he would put it under the neck of that lamb and while I'm holding the lamb, I would have to take its life. The priest would collect some of the blood of that lamb in that bowl and there's a little more to it than this but basically that was the end of my part. I had symbolically transferred my sins to the Lamb, which had died for my sins, and it's messy. There's a whole lot in this sanctuary system that I'm not going into today, but a big reason for the labor, that huge bowl of water in the middle, was to clean up because it was messy. And sin is messy. Now, the priest would go inside the sanctuary where the candlestick was and the the table of uh, showbread and the altar of incense, and he would take some of the blood from that lamb and he would sprinkle it on the curtain inside there between the holy and the most holy place. And I'd love to get into the Day of Atonement and all of that, but for today's um, purposes, I'm going to stop there. But God wanted the Israelites to know sin equals death. Can you imagine what it would be like if when you sinned, you had to kill a lamb? I'd like to think that maybe we'd think a second time, but they killed a lot of lambs. I'm not sure we would be any different. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This morning, I would like to introduce you or reintroduce you to our Savior who died for our sins. We're going to pick up the story in Matthew 27, and we're going to spend the rest of our sermon time in Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to start in the middle, around verse 26. By the time that we get to this part of the story, Jesus is about 33 years old. He spent the last roughly three years of his life in his public ministry. He's been leading disciples, training disciples, working miracles. All of these things have been happening. But where we pick up the story, this is pretty much the end. This is almost the end of his life, the end of his public ministry, the end of his training of his disciples, the end of this phase of the plan of salvation. We catch up here at the end Jesus has been through the Last Supper with his disciples. He's been to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. He's prayed for the Israelites. And he has prayed all down through history for you and me. And if you've not read that prayer in John, Jesus actually prays for you. He's been the victim of slander. Those closest to him have either betrayed him, ran away, or denied him. He's been beaten. And he now stands before a crowd next to a convicted murderer waiting for the crowd to (laughs) pass sentence on him. And there are cheers of crucify him and give us Barabbas in the air. And this is where we pick it up in verse 26. Jesus, sinless, Barabbas, not. Barabbas is released and Jesus is not. Verse 26 says, then he, referring to Pilate, released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus literally died for Barabbas. He took his place. He died in Barabbas' place. Jesus paid the penalty of sin, and Barabbas got to go free. There is nothing fair about that, and that's exactly what Jesus does for us. If we accept him, he dies for us, and we get to go free in him because he pays the penalty for us. Matthew is very, very simple with just three words, four words. He had Jesus scourged. Now, Hollywood has gone to Great Lakes to explain that scourging and to describe it and to show pictures of it. And uh, preachers such as myself have done the same thing. But Matthew, interestingly enough, doesn't seem to think that that's necessary. And I wonder if that's because, one, his congregation, his audience, his readers, when they heard about a Roman scourging, they knew exactly what that meant. No details necessary. Also possible that Matthew knew that this was a pretty minor part of the story. Jesus' physical pain and agony, of which there was a lot, is not really what the story is about. It's about Jesus' sacrifice so that we could have eternal life. Barabbas is released, Jesus is whipped, and he is delivered to be crucified. Verse 27 then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and before they bowed, and, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took a reed, and struck him on the head. This was great Roman sport. When you read that, they went into the praetorium. They went into an area where there were no Jews. Pilate likely wasn't even there. This is just the soldiers. They're killing a little time and they're having fun. They dragged Jesus into this spot. What takes place during these verses was completely unnecessary. They tear off his clothes. Somebody finds some kind of a a red or purple robe and puts it on him. I'm sure they didn't get a nice new one. I'm sure they found one that was in the laundry and threw it on him. And um, the Greek word for the crown of thorns, they called it a stefano, which is a word for victory. It's the crown of victory. But they made it out of a vine with with spikes, prickles. uh, What's the word? Thorns. There we go. Stick it on his head. And they give him a stick. Here's your scepter. And they bow down before him. Oh, Jesus. And they laugh. Somebody goes up and takes the scepter. Take a king's scepter. That's not a good thing. Mock a king. That's not a good thing. They whack him on the head. Scripture really doesn't tell us how long that crown stays on. The pictures, the movies, whatever, it stays on the whole time. It may have only been on for this short time or maybe he wore it the whole time, I don't know. But they hit him on the head, they mocked him. Verse 31 says, and when they mocked, had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Crucifixion was to be fairly undignified And I was reading one of the commentators on this. I don't remember what commentary I was looking at. But a lot of times crucifixions happened naked. But the commentator suggested that it specifies they put his clothes back on him because the Jews would not have been happy to have a naked man paraded through Jerusalem. Yet they had no problem with killing an innocent man. Removed the trappings of monarchy from Jesus and took him to be crucified. Verse 32, now they came out and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mixed with gall to drink. But he, when he tasted it, he would not drink it. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Simon. But the fact that he was from Cyrene suggests that he was maybe a convert to uh, Judaism or at least somebody that had moved out and he's making a pilgrimage for the Passover. And when he comes, he likely knows nothing about Jesus, doesn't care anything about Jesus, certainly wants to have nothing to do with somebody that's about to be killed or the Romans or anything. And I'm sure if he would have known that had he made a right turn instead of a left turn three minutes earlier, the day would have gone very different. He would have done that in a heartbeat. I'm suspicious that the moment he touched that cross, he was ceremonially unclean and not not able to participate in the Passover, that he had traveled to Jerusalem to participate because a Roman soldier grabbed him out of the crowd. Christian tradition suggests that Simon became a follower of Jesus after this, and that he was somebody that was a, a mover and shaker in the church later on. But at this moment, I'm guessing he was kind of grumpy. He goes to Golgotha carrying Jesus' cross, and the term Golgotha um, is a a term that when it's translated into Latin from Greek is translated as calvaria, which from English we get the word calvary. And all of those terms mean the same thing. It's skull, place of the skull or just skull. And if you go to Israel today, there are people that will tell you they think they know where Jesus was crucified. I have no idea if they're right or not. But there are some places where the, the rocks look like a skull if you use a little bit of imagination or it could have been a name used just because of the horrific things that happened there and there were horrific things that happened there it was not a place that people wanted to be wanted to go verse 34 I'm intrigued with Um, it says they gave him sour wine mixed with gall to drink Um, gall can be translated as bile I'm pretty sure that's not what it was but I mean, I wasn't there. Either way, I think one of two things is happening here. This could be a move of mercy where somebody is coming up to Jesus saying, let's give this beaten up man a little bit of alcohol to ease the pain. Or it could be somebody say, let's tease him and make him think he's gonna get a drink. And then when he tastes it, he's gonna realize he can't have a drink because it's terrible. Whatever it was, the Bible's very clear. Once Jesus realized what it was, he wanted nothing to do with it. Ellen White says that he knew the the importance of what he was doing and how important it was to have a clear mind. I think a lot of us would have said, hey, hey, if you need to take an aspirin, this is the time to do it. But Jesus said, this is so important. I've got to know exactly what I'm doing. I can't let anything cloud this. Verse 35. Then... They crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Boy, it seems like so much could be said there. Matthew in that verse spends more time talking about what happens to Jesus' clothes than what happened to him on the cross. You can get 15 movie minutes out of a Mel Gibson's movie for these four words. They crucified him. Matthew doesn't talk about the nails or the wood or the whippings or the hammers or any of that. They crucified him. Verse 36. Sitting down, referring to the soldiers, they kept watch over him there and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Oftentimes, uh, commentators suggest that what a person on a cross was accused of is put there and it's put there as a huge sign. Walk by, you read what the sign says and it says don't do what they did because you don't want to be where they are. And so they put this up there Jesus, king of the Jews. And he was. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and another on the left. I'm reading into things a little bit here, but that kind of makes Jesus look like the ringleader. It makes it look like Jesus was the perpetuator of whatever evilness these guys had done. Whatever it was, he was in the middle of it. And Jesus was dying for their sins too. Verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him and wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, you save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. (laughs) He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will save him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In verse 44, ironically... Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. They're dying, and they make fun of Jesus for dying, as he's dying for them. Jesus is mocked by the Romans, mocked by the robbers, mocked by the religious leaders, and mocked by his own people. I don't know the mind of God, but from a human perspective, I feel like this would have been the hardest. Because when somebody tells you that you can't do something that you full well can do, that you've got the power to do, I think the hard thing is not doing it. Now, I don't know that it was hard for Jesus. It would have been hard for me. With the flick of a wrist, the snap of a finger, or just a thought, he could have been off that cross and he could have let them have it. But that's not what he was here for. And he knew that wasn't his purpose. He knew that this is what he needed to go through to provide salvation and eternal life for you and me sitting here in the Madison East Seventh day Adventist Church today, and for Peter, James, and John, and for Adam and Eve. And so he stayed the course. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. The sixth hour is often believed to be right about noon, and darkness, at least for the Romans, was something that was often seen as as a bad omen or a bad sign, and maybe rightfully so for them. Verse 46 And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out in agony. Sin had obscured his view of God. But this was not a loss of faith on Jesus' part, just a loss of contact Not that God wasn't with Jesus, but simply that Jesus couldn't sense God's presence. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. Just because we can't sense God's presence doesn't mean God isn't there. God was with Jesus. God was there helping him. God went through him with that. And he does the same for us. But nonetheless, Jesus felt it. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. They didn't understand what he was saying. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit the word yielded here means to let go to to send away to give up to dismiss or to release and spirit in this context is wind or breath and so very literally Jesus gave up breathing he died The Son of God was dead. Simultaneously, verse 51 says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split open. Going back to the sanctuary, we looked at the picture earlier on in the sermon In that curtain between the holy and the most holy place, the curtain where the blood was sprinkled for all the sacrifices, the curtain that, that held all of those sins was ripped from the top to the bottom. I'm pretty sure if you went home and you grabbed whatever curtains you might have, if you have a curtain, you'd have a pretty hard time ripping it. Probably for most of us not possible. This curtain was much bigger, much stronger, much thicker, and if a human was going to rip it, you'd get three or four big guys on each side, and you'd pull from the bottom. This one ripped from the top middle right down. And when you looked through that ripped curtain, what you were supposed to see was the Ark of God with the Shekinah glory and the visible symbol of God's presence. But what you saw was an empty room. The Ark of the Covenant hadn't been in the temple in Israel in a long time, yet they still went through all of the motions of all of the sacrifices, even without the visible symbol of God's presence there. And when that curtain tore open, I believe it was very much a symbol that the old way to God through the sacrificial system was done. The Lamb of God had been sacrificed, the true Lamb of God. And all the way down through time till today, we have access to God directly. Not having to go through a priest and a sacrifice. You can talk to God right now. probably one of the stranger parts of the story. I could do a whole sermon on this and I'm gonna do 60 seconds. Verse 52 says, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the grave after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is kind of cool and kind of odd. But when that earthquake happened and earthquakes often accompanied things that God did. When that earthquake happened, graves opened everywhere, and Sunday morning when Jesus was raised to life, people came out of those graves, and they had testimonies to share, and the Bible nowhere spends any time telling us who it it was, or what they said, or where they went. Ellen White suggests that when Jesus went back to heaven, after his time on earth was all done, that those were some of the first fruits that went up with him. I don't know, but that seems nicer than letting them die again. But that's what happened to Lazarus. That's what happened to the little girl who died that Jesus raised to life. They died again. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, a time is coming when they're not going to have to die. For all of eternity, they'll be able to be alive. The last verse I'm covering this morning, verse 54. So when the centurion, who those... And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all the things that happened. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. I don't think that we can interact with the Savior and not be changed. I think there's one of two things that happen. When you see Jesus, when you meet Jesus, when you focus on what Jesus has done for you You either walk away or you walk to him. But I don't think you can stay the same. I'm a sinner. And I'm in need of a savior. I live in the midst of this great controversy between Christ and Satan. And I have seen the world under Satan's rule. And I've had enough. I don't need to see anymore to make a decision. And I've seen through scripture what Jesus has lovingly done for me. And that's what I want. I'm a sinner in need of a savior and Jesus is that savior. Maybe you don't know what the question is that you wanna ask, but I'm pretty sure Jesus is the answer. Jesus didn't die for perfect people He didn't die for people that have it all together. He didn't die just for other people to be saved. He died for you. Thankfully for me also. The Bible tells us, while we were still sinners, I believe this is in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were in a position of an adversary to Christ, when we were in the position of an enemy to Jesus, when we were in the position where he knew that we could say, I don't care what you've done for me, God, he died for us anyway. That's a lot of love. Maybe this morning you've accepted Jesus a hundred times, a thousand times. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus at all. In just a moment, I'm gonna kneel down and I'd like to have a prayer for anybody that wants to accept Jesus for the first time or the millionth time. Because I think this is something to do every day. To say, Jesus, you are my all in all. You are my Lord, you are my Savior. That's a lot of love. And he did it for us. I invite you to kneel with me if it's your prayer that you would like to ask Jesus to be your God whether it's again or for the first time. Dear Heavenly Father, you see the people that are here, the people that are kneeling. Lord, we're sinners. We can't do it on our own The world tells us we can. The world says this is foolishness. Lord, I'm thankful that you give us the strength to focus on you. Lord, if there's someone in this room that's kneeling down for the very first time to ask you to be their savior, I thank you for that. Lord, I ask that you would forgive our sins as we acknowledge that we're sinners. I thank you for the promise of of working in us so that we can be a new creation. And Lord, I thank you that you desire to change us, to take us to heaven for all of eternity. Lord, there are some, many probably, that have given their lives to you many, many times. And I thank you for them kneeling. And as they yet again give their life to you, I ask that you would continue to work in their hearts, their lives, that you would use all of us to share this good news with others. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness of sins, your mercy and your grace, and boy, the plans you have for our future. I thank you for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon has to end somewhere, and this is where it ends. But I think the question in a lot of people's minds is, what's next? Jesus says he'll change us. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not a prescription for salvation, but a description of a follower of Christ. This is what you do. He changes us from what we were into what he wants us to be. And I cannot wait for heaven.